0: Please welcome Mike back. And uh, step
1: ahead. I'll note that uh, for session one it said Michael. Now it says Mike, so I guess now we're friends. Yes. Okay. So, um, okay. Session two. So now we get into the fun stuff. All right. Threats to religious freedom. Um, a reminder of the battlefield, the four pillars that religious liberty, uh, that first liberty fights. In and uh, really, I've broken this one down more into videos because um, it's a lot easier to tell stories with with videos than for me than me just standing up here, flapping my gums. Um, but as we talk about each the each of these and and, uh, and walk through them, uh, the following ex- videos that I have lined up are examples of the threats facing us, but they're also examples of uh, what I think of as profiles and courage, right? Just the, the the type of everyday people that First Liberty encounters and represents, and the type of people that face re- threats to their religious freedom. Uh, so think about that as you watch these. You know, just th- these are people that could be in your neighborhood, in your unit, in your church, um, in your community, and then they're also, uh, I think, provide some insight into. What First Liberty does and, and how we fight to win. The first video that I'm going to talk about is uh, is Gail Blair. We call this one our our, our blind faith case. Um, so I will I'll show the video and then we'll we'll talk about it.
2: Nursing was it for me? It was my identity. I did everything. If I could help them get a job or an apartment, my husband says that I am a um, frustrated social worker. <laughs> January 7th, 1984, I actually had been going to my Bible study on the book of John, and uh, it opened my heart to the Word of God being the answer, the truth. It was the best day of my life. I actually was born with a genetic disorder, retinitis pigmentosa, and I still continued nursing until I couldn't anymore because of my vision loss. If somebody says, if ever said to me, hey, you can have your eyesight, but you have to, you know, get rid of Jesus, I'd say, no, no deal. Wherever I go, I try to hand this out to people. So it's 21 chapters of the gospel. I get around with my cane, to cross the street, to go in the park. Going into a park to uh, talk with people is a pleasure, first of all. But knowing that eternal life is real, and people don't know that they're in danger. People have been saved in the park. I've had more of a reaction from the staff on, in the park that was not too nice. Uh, Like they would interrupt me. There's plenty of people to talk to. I don't have to be um, going after anybody. I couldn't. It would be a tripping hazard for me. I was sitting on the bench with a a man that I was conversing with. The executive director comes over and he says that he was going to call the police. And uh, that's the start of the two-year ban, even from the library, which that was a little bit of a surprise to me that they were me from both the park and the library on passing out one of the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your library that people can check out. Uh, I guess my heart is broken that uh, I can't do what the Lord has told me to do. So, if you want to say that, I, I think about daily the lost souls. I think the Lord has positioned me right across from the bar. It, it's a divine uh, assignment that I absolutely need to fulfill, it's, it's just a must.
1: So that's the story of Gail Blair, who, as she said, lives across the street from a park in a public library. She's blind. So fortunately, she's able to get across the street safely with her, with her walking stick, as you, as you saw. And she would just share her faith with people, right? Remember we talked about free exercise. She was exercising her faith right? Um, and, and sharing with people. Uh, as she said, she wasn't chasing anybody, because she can't. Um, so these are, and I mean, you know, you can see Gail. She's hardly a, a, you know, an imposing figure who's going to intimidate anybody. Um, and so, uh, but nevertheless, the executive director of the Parks-Less Library came to her and said, uh, you, you're not allowed to do this here, and we're going to call the police on you. right?" Now, again, so you have this Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause. Um, Gail has the right under the Free Exercise Clause to do what she's doing. But this executive director uh, believes mistakenly that somehow the Establishment Clause, as we talked about earlier, uh, ironically, this is Rhode Island. Right? So this is the, um, you know, the, the, the place where Roger Williams and his followers fled to seeking religious freedom but nevertheless, now you have, here in Rhode Island, um, telling her, no, you can't. Because this is going back to what I said earlier about totalitarian regimes. Why? Because we're the government, right? and we say you can't. Uh, now, the good news is that First Liberty represented Gale free of charge. We fought back, and we were able to finally get the, uh, the government officials there in Providence to relent and to uh, basically allow Gail to begin doing, to recognize the Constitution in essence, and to allow Gail to do this again. And the really good news is that uh, we just got a report from Gail recently that uh, she is, because of the, the warmer months, this is back in the spring, once the, the, you know, all the permafrost had thawed out there in Rhode Island, um, <laughs> she was able to go out to the park again with her newly rediscovered freedoms and begin sharing. And she was, and, and, and she reported to us recently that she had just had her first person that she had talked to who was, she was able to lead to Christ through um, through being able to do this again. So to me, this case is about much more than this, uh, a, a little blind lady who lives across the street from the park. How
3: long did
1: that take to start to finish? Um, how long did it take from start to finish? It was... Not quite a year if I recall, so yeah it's we didn't have to sue thankfully we didn't have to go into court we were able to resolve it before we got to court but gail 's case I think really epitomizes what kind of she, Gail is one of the whys behind the what you know I mean that again, that could be somebody's grandmother somebody's aunt somebody's mother somebody's next door neighbor um and just one of the you know, sweetest ladies who just really has a heart for people and to give people eternal hope. And and she was told no. Right? Why? Because the Establishment Clause, right? Oh, the, that separation of church and state. Yes? How
4: did she come to your organization? How did she find out about us?
1: How did Gail find out about us? That is a great question, and I'm trying to remember. I... I don't know, I don't recall exactly how she found out about us. Um, some of these other ones I'm going to talk about, I, I, can, I, I do know exactly how they found out about us, but I don't remember how Gail found us or whether we found her. I'm pretty sure she found us, but I just don't remember how. Uh, she may have, you know, seen us on a news article or on a TV show or something like that and said, hey, maybe they can help me, which is a lot of times how that happens, right? Kind of that. Um, Snowball effect, right? Hey, I, you know, I saw you represent so and so. I wonder maybe you guys can help me. So that's that's the Gil Blair case, um, uh, and that represents going back to the, you know, to the to the uh, four pillars. You know, that's an example of one of the cases that we would do in the public arena. Just an ordinary, everyday American citizen wanting to be able to exercise and freely live out their faith, just as as an American. Um, And and, and really to put it in perspective, you know, if Gail were living in China or living in uh, even other countries that at least are notionally democratic countries uh, in Canada, gosh, if you've seen what's happening in Canada recently, I guarantee you that the outcome that we got for Gail would not happen, would not happen. So, all right. The next case I want to talk about is uh, Coach Joe Kendi. And some of you, this one is one that's been in the news a lot over the years. Uh, To head off the question before I even get it, how long has the Coach Kennedy case been going on? Six years now. All right, it's been going on for six years. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you where we are in just a minute, but I'm going to let you guys watch the video first.
2: Is how how attached you get to these kids, and not to be part of it—it's just so wrong. High school football coach Joe Kennedy has been put on paid administrative leave, and suspended, booted from
1: the program. This crimes? Playing with the players.
0: I first started out, it was just
3: myself. I first started just praying myself in, you know, thanks for what the players just did and the opportunity to be part of it. And for a while, it started to more and
2: more kids. Our kids started inviting the other teams. Even our most bitter rivals were out there with us, which was really amazing. I just looked up
3: whole Elements, um, ours and opposing teams, and just say, I like to lift these guys up for what they just did. They battled for forty-eight minutes and what started, you know, as a war, we could all leave off, you know, as friends. during the game were enemies, but then you bring together like, for one big family. And you know, it was just kinda like a huge impact on like all of us. Then all we could say amen and walk off. It's a thirty second mass thing.
5: I didn't do it as a prayer at all. he didn't say like anything like Dodd or anything involving like religion, he just kind of goes like a post game
2: speech. It's magical because it brought everybody, in the other teams, back together as a, just people, and it was awesome. This is what a team is about. At the end of the game, we come together. He always had the right thing to say. Nothing is ever required. It's what they want to do. My belief is my belief. I'm not trying to push on
3: anybody, you know. Faith is a very personal thing for everyone, and it's
0: just me giving me thanks.
5: Huh.
3: The school district is
1: persuaded against Christianity on the basis of his religion, And the basis of his religious beliefs and the fact that he is a, a Christian who desires to Take can meeting, and give thanks at the end of football. We filed an EEOC action, that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So that's a federal agency that uh, handles cases of discrimination in the workplace. Uh, Discrimination can be on any number of grounds. In this case, it's religious discrimination.
6: And big support. Everything he does is from his heart. Everything is meant to like care for the kids. He's not meaning any harm to us and he's not trying to like impact
3: our religion or anything. I spent twenty years in the military. This is definitely by far the hardest thing I've ever been through. I really I to just watch the game just like anybody else. I'm seeing that for the kids that didn't really have parents Mm -hmm. that supported them, people walk out with them and act as like their parental figure. It just shows the good man that he was and the good actions he did for us.
2: I was going through some troubles at home with my dad, and he helped me just sat me down, talked to me about how it's gonna get better no matter what. I wanted him there because he was there for me. It's not the X's and O's of women football games. It's, it's watching these guys overcoming the things that they go through in life and emerging as a stronger person because of it. And knowing that you came to such a small time in your life and you being able to be part of it, that's a blessing. That's, that's, that's what God called you to do. And I go through it all over the it, fun And it's tough. Because I love you.
1: So that video was shot uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, probably um, close to six years ago. And as I mentioned, the case has been going on for a better part of six years. And um, a couple of things I want to clarify out of that video. First, you heard Kennedy, who's the Fox News host, said, uh, why was he fired? He was fired for praying with his players. Uh, that's technically not true. That was just, uh, if you've ever you know, been quoted in the news, you'll see all, a lot of times they'll, they'll get little factoids wrong. He was not fired for praying with his players because the school district told him, you can pray as long as you don't pray with your players. And coach said, that's perfectly fine, right? My, 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 uh, my commitment is not to pray with another person. My commitment is to just thank God, even if it's just by myself. And then the school district later came and said, well now we have a problem with you praying even by yourself and that's we stepped in we said why do you have a problem with him praying by himself and they said because somebody could see it right and if somebody sees it then will then they'll think and that was that that thing that i i pointed to with the laser belt, they'll think that the school is formally establishing religion or endorsing religion because we're allowing you to pray and you're wearing a bremerton high school hoodie or a polo shirt or whatever and so that that's the establishment clause right so look again, another illustration of just how far we've come from the original founder's understanding and vision for the First Amendment to now a football coach can lose his job because if he prays and people see him, that must be what the founders intended to protect us against in the Establishment Clause, right? It's clearly a football coach. Another thing, funny thing about the case is we said, well, he's not even praying audibly. He's not praying with anybody, and he's not praying audibly. He's taking a knee. And literally doing like the Tim Tebow, right? Um, and and they said, ah, but we know what he's doing. I said, how do you? Know? He could be tying his shoe. He could be sampling grass clippings. He could be looking for a lost contact lens. How do you know what he's doing? And they said, because you told us what he's doing, right? When you, I said, well, we were, we didn't tell you for the purposes of like of him being fine. we told you because we requested that you allow him to do this right without punishment and you're essentially now using that against us so and you want to talk about moving the goalposts it's like the old it, it, this case when it was leading up to it was literally like the, the the human example of Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football you know every time Charlie Brown would go to kick the ball Lucy would pull it away at the last second so so the school district first says they do an investment uh, well let me even start from the very beginning so as Coach said, he started praying by himself, by, literally just by himself. Okay? Then after several weeks of this, a couple of the players kind of like moseyed out and said, hey, Coach, what are you doing out there after the games? He's like, what do you mean? They said, like, after the games, we notice that you, you are always kneeling out in the field. What are you doing? And he said, I'm just giving thanks. Thanks for what? Thanks for what you guys did. And, you know, Joey got hurt. I'm asking that he that he, that he heals up in time for next week. Oh, okay. A couple weeks later, some of them came out. Hey, Coach, some of us go to church, and we're kind of wondering, are we allowed to pray out there after the games? Right? Um, and his response, classic Coach Kennedy, U.S. Marine, served for 20 years, Desert Storm veteran, says, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. Right? And he'd already received guidance from the school district. Uh, every, every teacher received this guidance, right? saying uh, uh, teachers and school employ, employees can neither encourage nor discourage religious activity by students. So he just followed that. And he said, I, I can't encourage you or discourage you from praying. It's a free country. You can do whatever you want. Right? I'm going to do my thing, and you guys do your thing. And that's, and that's how it started. It started organically like that, and then over the weeks, more players join and more players join and more players join. And then it sort of became like the little pep rally thing at the end, you know, where he's holding up the helmets because there were so many people out there and they were like, hey, coach, come say a few words, you know? Come, come come, say something. So he'd be like, hold up the helmets from both teams, say, hey, you guys are bitter rivals on the field. Let's walk out of here as, as friends, okay? And then they would all go, you know, eh, and then, you know, and that was it. And that, that went on for years. No issues. Not, the school district said not a single complaint. No evidence that any student had ever said that they felt pressured to participate. For, for like uh, five, six years that went on. One day, a school administrator from a neighboring school sees the post-game little thing and, and walks over to the, uh, the uh, uh, superintendent of Bremerton School District. said, hey, that's really cool. He says, what? And he says, just that thing that you guys do out there. Because I, you know, like that's really good sportsmanship. We don't see that much these days. And proving that no good deed goes unpunished. For whatever reason, the superintendent said, hey, you know, maybe we ought to make sure that's legal. And so they actually did an investigation just to make sure it was legal, right? And the investigation, as I said, said no complaints ever from any, any students or, play, or parents. No evidence that any player had ever felt pressured or coerced into participating. And and the, so the guides they issued to coach, they said, just to be on the up and up. Don't you can do it, just don't do it with any students. Just be be separate from them. And so and he said, okay, that's fine. Because that's remember, that's how it started. It was just him by himself. I said, okay. So they gave guidance to the students, like you guys can if, you, if students want to pray, you, you you can pray by yourselves but don't involve coaches. Don't involve Coach Kennedy. And Coach, if you want to do it, you do it over here by yourself. Don't involve the students. Everybody said, it's fine with us. No problem. Well, then that's when they moved the goalposts, right? They said, well, actually, we don't want you doing it at all because now our lawyers are telling us that if people see you and they see you wearing the Bremerton School District logo on your shirt, they'll think that the school is endorsing that. And we think that might violate the Constitution. We don't want to get sued, so now you can't do it. And that was basically a step too, you know, a bridge too far for us. And but we said, okay, we're going to ask for a religious accommodation. And that's where you heard my part, where I was talking about the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity, because you can, under the EEOC rules, you can ask for a religious accommodation. Um, And 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 the accommodation we asked for was, hey, just a. OK, we understand you might have a policy or whatever it says that coaches and employees can't do this. We're asking for an accommodation from that policy. Allow him to have a 15 to 30 second silent prayer by himself after the game on the field. Right, Nobody else around him, just by himself. We'll even wait until, because you know, you, if you've ever been to a high school football game, you know, what do the kids do? They go across the midfield and they all high five the kids from the other team. You know good game good game good game i hate you you know and that kind of stuff and then they and then they all peel off and go back to their own sideline and sing the fight song and hug their parents and their girlfriends in the stands and all that kind of stuff so we said we'll wait until that time when the students are in the stands fighting the song so all the attention is over there and then he can just do it and no big deal school district moved the goalposts again they said we can't allow him to do that why not well Because his job is to supervise the students. And if he's praying, he can't supervise. And we said, well, okay, what do you want to do? And they said, we have a solution. Okay, they said, we'll offer an accommodation. Oh, this ought to be good. What's your accommodation, school district? And they said, he can go to the locker room and pray behind closed doors where nobody can see him. Because remember, their concern was nobody seeing him. And I said, but, okay. I, I've stood, Okay, you saw little, little bits and pieces of the football stadium there, right? So I've stood at the 50-yard line on that stadium, and I've walked to the locker room, and I timed it just to see how long it takes, all right? It's about a five-and-a-half-minute walk to get off of the field, up the stairs, out, you know, across the, the little walkway into the, where the locker rooms are. It's about a five-and-a-half-minute walk. So it's 11 minutes plus 15 to 30 seconds to pray, all Right. So it's about 12 minutes-ish. So he's out of sight for 12 minutes, and you're saying that's okay because nobody can see him. But if he prays on the field, oh, well, he has to supervise. How is he going to supervise if he's in the locker room for 12 minutes? You know? Anyway, so again, it was just, it's like ch- trying to nail jello to the wall. We said enough is enough, and we sued the school district roughly six years ago. We lost at the district court. This is Seattle, Washington, right? So... Okay, we we knew this going in. It's not like we, you know, um, we lost at the district court. We then went to the infamous Ninth Circuit. Okay, we lost there. Um, we then went, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. To get a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, you have to get four justices to say yes, we want to hear the case. All right. The court said, we're not going to hear the case, but four of the justices signed what's called, a, this has not, not happened very often at all, this is very rare, but they, four justices joined what's called a statement respecting the denial of cert. So in other words, we're not taking the case, but we need to tell you why we're not taking the case. Again, very, very rare, you don't get this very often. Uh, it made big, big waves in the, in, the, in the legal circles, all right? And these four justices said, the court's not ready to hear the case yet because there are still some unanswered facts that the judge at the trial level needs to answer before we can decide whether we want to hear this case. However, we have real trouble, real issues with what the Ninth Circuit did in this case, okay? We, we find the Ninth Circuit's decision on this case very disturbing, and we might want to revisit that if, the ju- if we get answers to the following questions. And then they basically said, like, you know, sort of a, uh, remember those if, then, then, that, you know, type of thing. So if this is true, then this, and then if this is true, then it basically gave us a roadmap, which again is like unheard of. You know, people were calling us like, how did you get the court to do that? And we were just like, you know, because the court, I mean, I've never seen the court basically say, if you provide the following information, we're probably going to take this case. So we had to go all the way back to the district court again. Get the answer to those questions, lose again, right? Even, even though the Supreme Court basically said, we're probably going to take this case, the district court judge just, it's Seattle, right? He just did what he's going to do. Back to the Ninth Circuit again, where we just lost uh, uh, back in January. All right? We were getting ready to go back to the Supreme Court again. We weren't even going to bother with a, a, an intermediate step, which is called. Asking the court, the, the Ninth Circuit, to hear the case on banc. On banc just means in front of the entire court. Because usually, when you appeal a case, it, you get a th- randomly drawn three-judge panel. All right, so you get three. The Ninth Circuit has like 30 judges. Okay, you get re- three drawn at random from those 30. And then a lot of times, what people will do before they go to the Supreme Court is they will then ask the entire court, all 30 judges, to hear the case uh, before, as an inter- intermediate step. We decided we've already been here once before. We know we've read this chapter. Bypass that. Let's just go straight to the Supreme Court. We're ready. We've got we got the answers we needed. We're ready. So we were getting ready to file our appeals to the Supreme Court when the Ninth Circuit issued an order because they knew what we were doing. They issued an order saying uh, we want you to. Uh, it was it's weird. They weren't saying we're going to hear the case on vac. They said we want you to send us a brief explaining why we shouldn't hear the case on or why we should or should not hear the case on bonk right so of course our side had to say here's why you should hear the case on bonk even though we don't want them to right and then bremerton school district is saying here's why we don't want you to hear the case on bonk because they just want this decision to stand and then be done with it here's the really really interesting thing about the case too we should tell you what this case is really really about when we first sued Bremerton School District was represented by just a local, their local Toc- Bremerton-Tacoma area attorney law firm. It's a small little attorney from that area. When they realized they were up against us, First Liberty, and the legal team that we had assembled, um, they, th- and when I say the legal team we assembled, I guess I should explain that. So the way that we do cases, so I'm going I'm to do a little, a little detour here and then I have to come back to where I was. So where I was, I was explaining the legal team we assemble. Okay, I'll come back to that point. The way First Liberty does cases is uh, most nonprofits in the religious liberty world, actually most profits in most public policy legal areas, the way that they do things is they raise as much money as they can, hire as many attorneys as they can, they stick them all in an office in New York, or LA, or Washington, DC, and then whenever a case pops up, they just fly out, and they do the case, and then that's it. And a decent track record for those types of firms is on either side of the political spectrum, doesn't matter what side you're on. A decent track record is like 50-50, right? Win one, you lose one. Win one, you lose one. If you're really good, you may be two out of three. At First Liberty, we realized long ago, through God's wisdom, there's a better way to do this, all right. Um, there are literally thousands of attorneys across the country who work at the biggest, most powerful law firms in the world. Okay, these are within like in the legal circle. These are like the you know like the Fortune 50, right? If if there was such a thing in the in the in the legal world, there actually is. It's just you probably never heard of it. It's called uh, it's called. Um, the, like the Amlaw 100 or the Chambers. Uh, I won't bore you with all that. So anyway, these are like the creme, creme de la creme of the legal world, of legal profession. And there are a lot of super, super, super liberal progressive attorneys working in these firms, as you might imagine, who donate a lot of their time to representing the ACLU or representing Planned Parenthood or whatever, you name it, okay? Lots of liberal causes. But guess what? There are also really really conservative attorneys who work in those firms and they went to law school very much like I did believing that the Constitution is a brilliant document that it's worth defending that it should mean something and that our freedoms and our First Amendment rights are, are, are extremely important and valuable and these attorneys now they you know they represent big corporations for lots and lots and lots of money far way more money than I make as a nonprofit attorney all right um, but we won't talk about that. Um, and so, uh, but they do honest work for honest pay, no doubt about that. But many of them have never had the opportunity to do a case for religious freedom, and then we come along, and we provide them the opportunity to match up all of their gifts, their God-given gifts, and their talents and their brilliance, their legal skills. That now we get to align that up with what they really believe in. Right? They believe in this country. They believe in the Constitution. And if you've ever meet an attorney, they'll tell you these firms, most of the pro bono, so like the, the, the um, uh, everybody knows what pro, when I say pro bono, right? The pro bono work, that, because most attorneys at firms are require, they have a mandatory number of pro bono hours they have to donate every year to, to causes. Most of the time, they're super, super progressive causes, right? representing Planned Parenthood, or if they're lucky, and they get away from doing that, they have to do like landlord-tenant issues, right? Or something like, I mean, something that they're just like, uh, you know, not, I mean, yeah, it's important work, but not like stuff that gets them really, really excited. We present them a case like Coach Kennedy or Gail Blair or some of these others that I've talked about. The American Legion case with the, with the World War I Veterans Memorial Cross, right? And they're like, I've been waiting my whole career to do a case like this. Sign me up. And and what they what they don't know though is that once they've had that first taste, we now have law firms fighting, like say, hey hey hey, it's our turn, you know, or hey, we did a case like two years ago, give us another one. You know, it's been two years, man. Come on, give me another one. Um, and what we didn't count on though was the incredible, just the incredible outcomes that that would generate. Remember what I said? Like, average fifty fifty. If you're good, you may win two out of three. Well, for about 20 years now, our win-loss record in court has been above 90%. Right? So, and that's not because of our brilliance. And we've got great attorneys, We're very, you know, we, we, we have very high standards for recruiting, but that has nothing to do with us. That's all God's provision. And just having, you know, I, I would not have been able to create that model for success myself and neither would kelly shackleford our president ceo that was all uh god's doing and and he gets the credit for that but it has had you know an incredible uh, uh, outcome Um, i hope i really hope and pray that coach kennedy's case will eventually get put in the win column you know because right now it's kind of in the i mean you don't count each of the losses along the way as a loss until you reach finality, right? Once you reach a final decision, that's ultimately what what counts. Just like the World War I Veterans Memorial, we lost at the district court, lost at the Court of Appeals, and then we won at the Supreme Court. So it ultimately counts as a win, right? So um, the team, going back to what I was saying, so the team that we put together using that model for Coach Kennedy's case, uh, our lead attorney is a guy by the name of Paul Clement. Uh, Anybody ever heard of the name Paul Clement? Okay, good. Oh, one person has, okay. Do you know who he is? I'm the nation lawyer because I follow all this stuff in the news, but... Okay, so Paul Clement is the former Solicitor General of the United States. The Solicitor General of the United States is the person uh, uh, appointed by the President, confirmed by the Senate, who effectively argues on behalf of the United States of America at the U.S. Supreme Court. So anytime the United States is involved in litigation, the Solicitor General is the one who argues the case. If you are a successful attorney, all right, you could be a very, very successful attorney and never have a single case at the U.S. Supreme Court in your entire career. You could, you could work 50 years and never get a single case. All right. If you get one case at the U.S. Supreme Court, that is usually considered a bucket list accomplishment. I was in Jackson County, Alabama, so kind of the North Alabama area a couple years ago, down there, uh, uh, meeting with some prospective clients. And we were meeting in this little law office. And it was like one of those like little offices that's shared by a couple of different law firms and probably an accounting firm or whatever. And I remember as I walked in, and we're like in the little, you know, Jackson County, Alabama, um, so somewhat middle of nowhere, right? Little town, small town America. And we walk into this little, you know, law office uh, off right off the town square, and we're sitting in the lobby, me and, and one of my colleagues. And I turn and I look up on the wall, and there, framed, right, um, sort of as this, like I'm amazing, is a uh, was the briefs from a Supreme Court case, and we were just kind of like, oh, one some one of the attorneys here had a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was an obscure case that like nobody's ever heard of, right? It's just a you know, over something weird, and. Uh, we'd never heard of it, of this case. It's not one that you cite in, like, you know, law school or whatever. It's just a case that just the Supreme Court heard many, many years ago. But when they came out to, like, greet us and, hey, how are you doing? Hey, did you see did you see this? Did you see this, you know, like, on the wall? And, like, uh, so, so-and-so so in our firm had a case at the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, it's kind of like, like basically trying to say, like, we are big time. Right. We are big, to- we had a case at the US- again, a case I've never heard of, by, no, and, 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 and that's, again, for many attorneys, that is literally a bucket list accomplishment, professionally speaking. You go back to Paul Clement, the lead attorney on our team with Coach Kennedy, I've lost track where he currently is, but I believe he's up to 114 arguments at the US Supreme Court now. He's the most of any living person, all right? Um, uh, if you've argued at the U.S. Supreme Court 114 times, he, he is, I mean, like, like rock star status within the, 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 the legal community, uh, instant, like, name recognition. He was like, you know, it'd be like saying, hey, uh, uh, we're putting together a flag football team, and um, uh, some guy named Tom Brady said he would, wouldn't mind playing for us. You know, he said he could throw the ball a little bit. You know, or something like that. So, and I can't stand Tom Brady. I'm just using. So. All right. So, where are we in the Coach Kennedy case? Um, we are now back at the Ninth Circuit again. And as I mentioned, they ordered the uh, the us to say why they shouldn't take it on bonk. And as I was saying, to tell you what the case is really, really about. So, we have that legal team put together with Paul Clement and his firm and us and some others. Bremerton School Districts represented by their little small town firm. When they look at us, uh, and they're like, OK. They, they, basically, I think that attorney said, you're going to have to bring in some bigger guns. So then they hired a bigger firm from the Seattle area. And they represented them for a while. And now that this has been dragging on, um, and it's gotten so much attention because of the issues involved, and it's costing the school district lots and lots of money to, to continue to do this. So we, we provide everything free and our agreement with all these firms that we work with like Paul Clement and others is you have if you're gonna do a case with us you have to donate your time because we we don't charge so you can't charge and they agree to do that so he's literally donating his time if we were to send coach Kennedy a bill um, it would be it would be close to eight figures eight figures right, for the amount of time that's been donated to this case eight figures and so, on the other side, they're running out of money. Guess who stepped in to say, we will represent the Remington School District against Coach Kennedy? The uh, American Humanist Association, right? The or- same organization that sued against the World War I Veterans Memorial, right? The organization whose, whose mission is to advance the cause of secular humanism in America that is who's representing a public school district. You asked earlier, what is a religion? And I said, in general terms, it's any systematic, organized set of beliefs that follows a guiding set of principles. And I said, secular humanism, in general terms, can be a religion, right? The American Humanist Association, a secular humanist organization by their own definition, represents a public school district, a government school district, whose argument is we can't allow Coach Kennedy to do this because it would violate the establishment clause. right? It would violate the so-called separation of church and state. And yet you have an organization that, generally speaking, is a religious organization representing the school district. That's what is ultimately. Is
3: that part of the argument you guys put
1: forward? Uh, not at this stage. If we were starting from scratch, yeah, I think it would be fair game. But at this point, everything is, once you get to the appellate stage uh, of, it, the term we use in law is the it's 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 called a a uh, cold hard dead record. It's set. It's, it, it can't be changed at that point. V- very rarely. But that's not really you new. Know, I mean, I mean the fact that the counsel okay. It's like it's not new information on the facts, right? It's it's ex- ex- external to the facts of the case. Um, now you better believe that when the time is right. We're going to make sure that the 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 party that's rep- or the, the firm that's representing the school district somehow becomes very public knowledge. Remember what I told you is that we we don't just operate in the courts. We have our own dedicated PR and communications arm that uh, is 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 very very effective. You should check out our YouTube channel sometime uh, just to see uh, how effective we can be. Um, we've we've brought many a. Uh, a a governmental agency to its knees before um, just so okay yes just
5: just to help me get a clear picture of where we started the school district restricted the football coach from praying because they were afraid they might get sued and now six years later and 15 million million dollars now mm-hmm. they've got yep. their lawsuit they were afraid of is that
1: yep and they and they-, they
5: didn't want to get sued because somebody thought it was a good idea but now they've got their lawsuit, right? So that's
1: not working out. Yep. yep. They had to. Uh, they had to borrow money to to authorize more money for their attorneys. So here's the really the dirty secret about the way that a lot of this works, is the the firms because the school district they have their own dedicated in house counsel, but their their job is to do stuff like they review contracts and things like that. They're not they're not equipped to handle constitutional litigation. So they have to bring in outside counsel. So you have an outside firm who gets retained by the school district who well, they have a financial incentive to keep the thing to keep it going, right? To keep the fight going. Why? Every time something happens, they, they bill them, they, get a, they send them a bill. So um, All right, so that's the Coach Kennedy case. Yes.
3: Humanist Society coming in and taking this case is, I mean, they're football
6: coaches. Fundraising.
1: The, mo- the question is, what's the motivation for the American Humanist Associ- Association? I, If I were giving the benefit of the doubt, I would say because they really believe in the cause but, uh, of separating church and state. So sure, that's that part is true, they really do believe in that. But also, they generate. A, they're going to generate a ton of publicity off of this, because for a long time, I mean, we have too. I'll be fair. We, we first, Liberty's generated a ton. We've been on. Uh, let's see. We've met. I met uh, Franklin Graham, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Senator Cruz, President Trump, um, uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, who's the Who's the one that, the the female who used to have her own show on Fox News and left for? Megan
6: Kelly.
1: Megan Kelly. Megan Kelly. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we were Megan Kelly. I mean, so yeah, and for a long time the running joke it was like, if if Coach Kennedy you know sneezes, Fox News wants to hear about it, right? So, um,
4: question: What does he get if he wins?
1: His job back. Oh, right. That's all we're asking for. That's, That's l- no, we're not asking for any money or anything. Not no back pay. No, no Nope, Just he just wants to be a coach again. That's it. Just wants to coach.
3: Maybe a clarification question. I, I do like your uh, definition of religion. Uh, it seems to me to be atheistic and
6: kind of a philosophical, it kind of removes the theistic argument out of religion. That confuses me a little bit. Uh, My my question is uh, would would the theistic argument cloud this case more than just the fitting philosophy to pray or uh, practice something? I'm
1: not, I'm not sure I I, I, I follow, but uh, I will say my the definition I offered of religion was again that was a so there's there's sort of two components to how I define a religion: the very broad and general, of just a systematic set of beliefs, and and, and then there's the, the the very specific, which is much more you know uh, theological in nature, right? That, um, so but the reason why I think we have to have a general definition of religion is one, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and and two, um, because I do believe that secular humanism is a religion unto itself I, like I, I believe that it is a religion unto itself so, uh,
6: so can you use that as that the, they are practicing a religion uh, their religion against this other man or is that, uh, Can you make them a religion or Can a
1: religion? we can we use the secular humanism definition of religion as an argument against them not in this case because we're not really fighting about sort of whose beliefs prevail. It's about whether or not the ultimate, the, 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 the concrete and discrete legal issue uh, within the Coach Kennedy case is really, um, does the First Amendment protect the right of a public employee, because he's a public employee, or was at the time, a public high school football coach, to engage in religious expression all right when it's visible to members of the public all right so so it's really it has nothing to do with what the school district's rights are it's it's what what is the right of coach kennedy a public employee and can a public employee be punished or terminated in this case for uh for engaging in that you know or does the first amendment protect them and there's a whole line of cases that delineates between if you're a private citizen and you do these things, well, yeah, the First Amendment protects you. But if you're a public employee and you do these things, then it's complicated. <laughs> All
6: right. So when I asked about the definition of religion, his answer is almost verbatim to our AR 600-20. Uh, so there's no theistic reference or anything.
1: So it's, it's almost verbatim. What we have in our regulation in the Army. That was not intentional. I would never copy the Army. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, and I, I, again, I offer that definition not as a personal endorsement of that. I mean, I believe that, like, my personal belief is that religion should be, it should be defined with a, a theistic component. Right? Because that's historically what religion has, has, has meant. That There is a theistic component to it. I'm just saying that pragmatically, or practically speaking, the, in, in the world in which we live, and especially the legal environment in which I operate, is I have to account for people who, who are governed by and operate by a set of principles that is atheistic. You know, but yet they they adhere to it every bit as much as it, as you and I do to our religious principles. So I don't know what else to call it other than a religion. You know, they're So. Um,
3: but the Department of Defense instruction says the set of beliefs that is held with the fervor of traditional theistic yeah. religious belief.
1: Yeah. I mean, another example would be the 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 satanic temple or the church of satan or whatever right is it so then the question is well is satanism, satanism a religion well correct me if i'm wrong but satan is not a deity right so they, so you can get into sort of that parsing of, of definitions of well does it do you have to follow a deity i mean then you can get into other denominations that i won't name here and whether or not the the what they believe in are those deities or are they simply humans who have served as messengers for them you know anyway um like i said i'm not i'm not ordained i'm not a pastor i'm not a chaplain so i i'm ill-equipped to to uh uh go down that road with with all of you all right moving on next so that was coach kennedy uh next case i want to talk about Almost seven weeks
5: ago, an Army Ranger Captain Russell Rippetoe is laid to rest in Section 60. Russell Rippetoe served with distinction of Rippen, Operation Iraqi Freedom, earning both the Bronze Star and Purple Star.
2: On the back of his dog, dog tag were engraved these words from the book of Joshua. "And not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid,
5: neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee. We got a phone call, call, and then, uh, someone told me it was Captain Ripito's father, the governor, told him it was Paul,
6: he just explained that Rossville was running short sleep. and he wanted to know if it could be
5: another thousand of for Rossville children. This yes. is so, crazy.
6: This is believing that you're going to live. And even if you die, you're going to be holding hands with God for it to be.
2: That's what it means to me. And every veteran that I know
6: lives the same.
1: When I was in Afghanistan in 2008, we took a mortar attack on the very first night there. I was scared to death. I found this bookmark in the back of my Bible, and it had a Bible verse on it. About, I will not fear the terror that strikes by night or the arrow that flies by day. And I clung to that. it meant so much to me to have God's word with me at that
4: moment. You walk in with your first comment, you're shy. You're scared.
1: You're... It angers me to think that some activist was just trying to take that away from me. When well, we first started there was only resistance. What we
4: were building from the military area, blah the that had so advised us,
1: and they asked us to do it. In 2019, Mikey Weinstein and his military religious and foundation sent a letter to the Department of Defense demanding that they stop children's strength when they to provide this source of hope, inspiration,
3: and encouragement for our service and veterans. they to walk mine in my shoes. Maybe they
6: should have a child in the military. Maybe they should lose that child. I
4: mean,
6: I gave you the right. My Marines gave you the right. The guys opened there in God gave me the right to believe it's But I also gave that right to everybody else. I've worn it ever since,
3: along with the dog tag that was attached to his coffin. I can barely see the writing anymore. It was tarnished. But I know what it says. I know it says. I will be strong and courageous. I will not be afraid. Oh, we're not we not even scared You have no idea what this little piece of metal is going to. It's not a piece of metal on the chair,
6: it's honor, and dignity, mm-hmm. and glory. We, we
1: will not stop until Silver Strength is able to continue to provide this source of hope and encouragement for our young And if I could have this to
2: my, to my brother, I don't know if I would do this, because this is really it.
1: So just to make sure everybody knows what's, what's going on here, um, Kenny Vaughn, who you saw talking there, is the uh, founder and owner of, of Shields of Strength. And going all the way back to the early days of OIF, uh, Shields of Strength has, has uh, produced and distributed millions of replica dog tags. Uh, for those, I mean, how many here have, have seen one or have one or, you know, seen them handed out, distributed, right? Uh, often uh, COs, uh, commanding officers, or chaplains will request these, say, hey, my unit's getting ready to deploy, can I get a thousand dog tags made with my unit logo on one side and, you know, the following Bible verse on the other side. And, um, and that, I mean, that went on for, for years, right? And you, you saw President Bush delivering the Memorial Day ceremony in 2003, so that was OIF-1, for Captain Russell Ripito. Captain Ripito is actually the first uh, US service member to uh, casualty from Operation Iraqi Freedom who was buried at Arlington Cemetery. So he's the first casual, OIF casualty buried at Arlington Cemetery. And his dog tags and his shield of strength is at the Smithsonian Museum today. You can actually see it. He was wearing that when he died. And President Bush, when he saw uh, uh, Joe Ripiteau, a Vietnam veteran himself, and Captain Joe Ripoteau's dad after the Memorial Day ceremony in the Rose Garden, he said, hey Joe, uh, man, uh, I'd sure like to get one of those dog tags. And, and, and Joe Ripiteau gave him uh, uh, Russell's dog tag. He said, here, Mr. President, I'd like you to have my sons. And that's why it was donated to Smithsonian. Um, and that's really what got Kenny started on this. And he is, I mean, you can go in the exchanges and, or you could and buy these. They're like nine ninety-nine dollars a piece. Um, but he's donated just as many as he's sold. Any time a military unit asks for him, he'll just donate them. out He'll just eat the cost and say, "Nope, I want you to have these. Um, and this went on for years. And then right around the 2011, 10, 2011 timeframe, Kenny got a, an email or a notice from the Department of Defense. And they had recently started a new thing called the uh, Trademark Licensing Office. So they didn't have, this didn't exist going all the way back to 2003. It was about 2010. The military decided that um, they can monetize these, right? Uh, uh, the unit logos and the eagle, globe, and anchor for the Marines and an you know, Army of One and all that. That hey, if we trademark these, we can start essentially selling them and get royalty payments off of this. So this is a money I mean, I, I kid you not, a money-making venture by the Department of Defense to do this. And so, not just shields of strength. There's a lot of other companies out there. I've been, I've had companies reach out to me. Uh, one of the largest ones in the in the industry in the in the defense memorabilia and merchandise industry. So yeah, prior to 2010, you know, we were we we would just do these. You know, we would make a shirt that said "Proud Army Dad" or a, uh, a necklace that said you know, "Army Sister" or "Army Wife." And never had any issues. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we get this: Hey. That's that, Eagle Globe and Anchor, that's trademarked. You owe us royalty payments off of that. Um, they said, if you want to be able to do that, to produce those shirts and sell them, you have to get a license. And so all these companies, including Shields of Strength, started having to get license agreements from the Department of Defense. So that's what he did. He got a license agreement. And that seemed to resolve the issue until 2019. And in 2019, the guy that we talked about earlier, Mikey Weinstein, somehow he found out that. It's probably because on Amazon you can at that time you could just go on Amazon and say, you know, military dog tag with Bible verse, and it would you know pop up. Oh, look, shields of strength. So Mikey Weinstein sent a letter to the Department of Defense, and he said, I'm going to sue you unless you stop these guys. Right? You put a stop to it right now because they're violating the Establishment Clause. They're violating the separation of church and state. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional to have. Uh, go army on one side and a Bible verse on the other side. Why? Oh, because somebody might think that the Department of Defense is officially establishing religion by allowing that. All right. Again, so that that was literally his argument: is that people will see these and think the Department of Defense is establishing a government religion by allowing a Bible verse to be on the same dog tag as a an army logo or a Marine Corps logo or whatever, and. Um, I mean it was maybe thirty six hours seventy two hours before Kenny got cease and desist letters from those trademark offices yep you got to stop you 're violating the law you know, and um, here 's the problem. the requests from the units didn 't stop. He continues to this day he just got one from the uh, I think it's 82nd Airborne, which sent him a request for like 750 replica dog tags, and he had, to, and, 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 and it breaks his heart every time he says, "I'm sorry, I'm, I can't. I'm not allowed to do this anymore because I've been shut down." So uh, we're still fighting on behalf of Kenny and Shields of Strength. Um, uh, we are getting ready to take action against the Department of Defense. So stay tuned. If you texted Liberty to 474747 you'll you'll you will be right up to date with when if uh, when we when we take action on that case but man you know if that doesn't tell you what our what we're up against now you can't even get you can't even get service members. I mean you saw what it means to those veterans and to the to the uh, to the next of kin for those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice so just like Kenneth Davis said, it's not just a piece of metal on a chain to to those who, you know, who've been it. And and you saw the the part with me in there. I hate that they made me do that, because I try to stay. I'm known at First Liberty as the stoic one, because I try not to show my cards too much. But they're like, come on, tell a little personal. Come on, you were in Afghanistan. Tell us a little personal story. So I just said, yeah, you know, actually, yes, Scripture is extremely important to those of us who who, uh, who believe because I mean the very first thing I did after I met my CO and he told me keep me out of jail for the next 10 months is I took all my stuff back to my tent just a little GP tent you know just canvas tent and uh, it was by this time it was probably 03 03 I was ready to crash so they showed me hey your your cots over here you know that's where you are dropped all my stuff climbed in, into the rack, I was getting ready to go to sleep. And then maybe 20 minutes later, boom, you know, it's just uh, and uh, it's like something straight out of a movie. You know, I shot up like a, like a straight rod. I, I probably set a world record for getting on my, my uh, body armor. And I'm like, you know, and then I look over and uh, John Harris, who is our uh, company commander, He's kind of laying there sleeping like this, and he kind of does one of these. Uh, and my call sign was Judge, because I'm Judge Advocate. He goes, and he had a big, thick country accent. He goes, Judge, what are you doing? I said, I'm putting on body armor, man. We're taking IDF. And he said, he goes, just go back to sleep. And I said, you know, it was, it was, he goes, trust me. He goes, Taliban aren't that good. He goes, the only way they're going to hit is if, if one of them hits the lottery. He goes, he goes, do you know do you know what they do? And I said, What? He goes, They drive up in a little Ford Ranger pickup truck and about you know, about forty miles an hour, and then they slow down to about twenty miles an hour, and somebody in the back gets a mortar tube, it goes, phoom, phom, and then he, and then they just pray to Allah that it hits us. He goes, literally, is that, they, they he goes, they've got a better chance of, of us getting struck by lightning than they do of hitting us with, with mortars. And so um, so, but every now and then you'd get one that would it would shake the fillings in your mouth. It would it would hit, it would hit close enough to, to rattle your fillings, and then you're kind of like okay, you know. Um, but uh, but if you've never experienced that before, like I hadn't at that point, because he'd already been there for about three weeks, so he'd already he'd already had his you know jump up and yeah exactly. So of course, uh, yeah. So I got to do that to the next rookie that came in, you know, and they when they came in and they jumped up in the middle of the night, you know, I did the whole like. Go back to sleep. You know. But uh, anyway. Um, but on a serious note, when that happened to me, uh, and I couldn't get back to sleep, you know, John Harris was like, go back to sleep. Well, uh, your adrenaline is just... you know. So I couldn't get back to sleep for a while. All I could do is just um, pull out my Bible. And I was flipping through it, and there stuck in the back was, of all things, it was a bookmark that had been given to me by one of my best friends in high school, mom, when I graduated high school, and I remember when she gave it to me, and she she said, "Always keep God's word with you; it'll keep you safe," you know. And there it was, sticking in the back of my Bible, and I pulled out that bookmark, and it was the ninety-first Psalm, of all of, of all the Psalms to read at that moment. And I just read it that, and and, and that's what it says, right? I will not fear. The, I'm probably, I will not fear the arrow that strikes by night or the, the, the terror that strikes in, at daytime, or the, the arrow that flies by day or the terror that strikes at night, right? And I thought, there, there's some terror out there trying to strike me at night, you know? And those are arrows. Those mortars are like arrows. Uh, and, and it just, I was able to go back to sleep after I read that. That's, that's, that's what I'm going to say. So to, you know, to tie that into shields of strength, so yes. Um, I take this case personally because I've benefited personally from what Kenny provides. And so for that to happen, it outrages me. So we left off at the Shields of Strength and uh, talking about the, the letter that the Department of Defense received from Mikey Weinstein saying that you, um, you have to shut down Shields of Strength Otherwise, I'm going to sue you. And just to give folks an idea again, I mentioned Mikey Weinstein earlier. I mentioned the name of his organization, the, uh, the misleading uh, Military Religious Freedom Foundation. And people say, well, that's not fair because he can name his organization whatever he wants. And you know, if he says he stands for religious freedom in the military, you should believe him. And I usually respond by saying, just watch this video and it will tell you what Mikey Weinstein really wants. Uh, the, and it's weirdly really weird how they did. I didn't create this; somebody else created this. Um, they put the question that was asked to him afterwards. So, uh, but the question was asked: Is uh, what do you think should be done about? Uh, and this was at a, a conference in front of people who were very friendly to his to his cause. So it was a sort of a softball question. And you know, what do you think should be done about all these fundamentalists in the military? Um, and this was his response. Oops.
4: Is that the word that was used, fundamentalist?
1: That's yeah, that's his that's his word. Um, let's see. How do I? It's one of those where you actually have to click on the slide. It's in this uh, one okay. yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the Romans had it right. When you lock off somebody's head and sit you on top of a pole, it changes behavior.
6: When people ask me, what do you want in the military? I tell want it's four hundred. 400 trials by general court-martial.
2: We need people to lose
6: their
0: liberty and to go to jail for what they've done, not be promoted.
1: That was the question he was asked, right? The fundamentalists embedded within our troops. So Mikey Weinstein believes that if you are, I mean, what we would consider to be a mainline Christian, he, 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 he believes that that's a fundamentalist, okay? Um uh, he <laughs> so there was an interview one time a number of years ago, or uh, I was interviewed by a reporter, and then the reporter then interviewed Mikey and asked him for his comments on what I had said. All right? Now, if you none of you really know me other than maybe Mark and Mark doesn't even really know me that well. Uh, but if you know me well, you'll know I am, um, you know, I, I'm pretty conservative, but most people I know don't describe me as a, a religious firebrand. Okay, I'm I'm pretty laissez-faire in, in terms of just. I, again, like I said, I grew up in the Bay Area in California. All right, my mother is agnostic. I lived in Europe for four years, so um, I, I've seen a lot. And I can, I can put up with a lot. And I can tolerate a lot of just different stuff. Like I just, um, stuff doesn't really phase me a whole lot. You know, I, I'm very confident and secure in what I believe um, as a as a Christian. And like I said, I'm, you know, definitely, I self-identify as a conservative Christian. I'm, po- I'm, I'm conservative theologically. I'm conservative, you know, socially and politically. But um, hopefully, as you all Perhaps, uh, you know, surmise over the last few hours. I'm not, you know, I, 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 like I'm not a bomb thrower. Put it that way. Right? I just um, so anyway. This interviewer asked Mikey, "Well, what are your thoughts on on what Mike Barry just said?" And um, I'm going to clean it up for you guys because of where we are. But he said Mike Barry is a raging mf'er and a stalking horse for fundamentalism. Um, so. Uh, and of course, all my colleagues thought that was like the coolest. Thing. They yes, they printed it out, put it on my office. You know, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So Mikey's an interesting guy, and uh, and people say, well, you know, isn't he like your, your nemesis? And I say, no, not really. I don't. Um, people say, well, don't you hate him? And I say, well, first of all, hate's an awfully strong word, and no, I don't. I don't hate him. Um, and I said, but the other thing too is, um, I, and this is, a, I'll get into a little bit of my theology here, is that I believe that, um, you know, the, the opposite of love is actually not hate, right? Because uh, hate requires attention and energy and resources. The opposite of love is actually absolute indifference, just complete separation. Right, and I think that's that's biblical, right? Yeah, like so, so hell is not, like, the, it's it's the absence of God. It's the absence of love, and and, um, and again, so I don't hate Mikey Weinstein. I just I just sort of ignore him, right? I just, I just kind of disregard him. Uh, I address I address the issues that he raises when they need to be addressed. But um, is he my nemesis? No, by no means. He's just. He's just there, you know, he's just something, something to be, he's like a pothole, you know, I just...
4: you're, you're his nemesis. A,
1: maybe, I mean, if I'm his nemesis, great, I'm glad I occupy, I live rent-free in his brain, that's that's wonderful, but, um, so, yes? So
5: to your point, does he actually bring lawsuits when he threatens to, because I'm aware that he sends threatening letters, and we actually received one at my, my base, my public affairs office got a this incoherent stream-of-consciousness rant from him about a Chaplain's Corner article in our...
3: He
1: loves slide adjectives. Slide.
5: So, yes, you know, when they said, well, what what would your response be to this? My first, I mean, I can't say this officially, but my first response was send it back to him and ask him to write it in plain English with good sentences, you know. so, But my question is, does he actually bring lawsuits, or does he just send... Threatening emails
1: to the Department of Defense and get them to jump through Okay, it's a great question. Is does Mikey Weinstein actually bring lawsuits? So, technically, yes, he has brought lawsuits Histori- in, in, like, like He actually has in the past. Okay. So, technically, the answer is yes. Okay. Now, that's the short answer. Here's the long answer that's, that's much more fun. Um, I told you all about the, the Northeast POWMIA network lawsuit. Remember, I said it, the lawsuit was not brought by Mikey Weinstein. The lawsuit was brought by somebody who was encouraged to do so by Mikey Weinstein. All right. Um, so Mikey is actually had, is not involved directly in the, in the lawsuit. He's just a cheerleader for the guy who brought the lawsuit. Um, and um, but when the lawsuit before the lawsuit was was brought, though, uh, this is what was fascinating. The General counsel, somebody—not the general counsel, but somebody who works in the office of general counsel at the Department of VA—called me. I remember I, I, I remember. I remember this vividly. I was in—I live sort of out in the country, and we have a barn. So I was out in the barn doing some work, and my phone rings. And it's a Washington D.C. number, and I thought I better answer that one. So I answer it, and it was. She identifies as, you know, I'm—I'm so and so. I work in the office of general counsel, at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, I would. It, it, you know, if you have time, I would like to ask you a question. I said, sure. She said, Are you familiar with Mr. Mikey Michael Weinstein and his litigation record? I said, What an odd question to get from the Office of General Counsel at the VA. And I said, Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I am. She said, Okay. I was told that you are familiar with his lawsuit record, and I'm. She goes, I can't find it anywhere. And I'm very curious to know. And I said, Okay, um, sure, I'll play. You know, I said. And it, uh, he's, he is one for seven, the one being a FOIA lawsuit. So if you count FOIA, he's one one, right? So a FOIA, if you can't, like FOIA, it's like, if you can't win a FOIA lawsuit, you should be disbarred, is my, is my opinion, okay? <laughs> like, FOIA is the most violated law, like, in the world, okay? Like, the, like it's almost impossible not to fa- violate FOIA, because it has so many little, like, Technical mousetraps that you can't like not have, the government can't not have, not, not violate it. Freedom of Freedom of Information Act. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. FOIA. Sorry, Freedom of Information Act. Um, so it's almost impossible to not technically win a FOIA lawsuit, right? And and what do you get out of a FOIA lawsuit? You get the information you asked for. That's pretty much it, right? Hey, I want some papers that say this, and then the government has a certain amount of time, and it's actually not a whole lot of time, it's like maybe like 30 days or 60 days, I can't remember off the top of my head, that they have to like provide it to you or a, like, a written response as to why they can't produce the documents. The government never makes the deadline. So then technically you win on default, right? Oh look, they, the government blew its deadline, hey, now you owe me the stuff I was asking for. So he technically won a FOIA lawsuit. Every other lawsuit he's filed, he has, uh, the only way I can describe it, is a I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of license here and, and and offer a euphemism. Please go with me on this one. If he were if if he were courting a girl, he w- hasn't even gotten to first base. Okay, like that's how like I mean he he gets dumped out before he even gets to like the first step. All right. So, um, uh, yeah yeah no no, no I, first base l- legally speaking. All right. I'm talking about. Uh, um, But no, and so that's how bad he is. And so when I said that, and I explained that to the uh, general counsel at the VA, or the the woman who works in the general counsel's office there, and I said, does that answer your question? She said, yes. And I said, may I ask a question? She said, yeah. And I said, why are you asking me this? And she said, well, we just got a, a, a notice that he's probably going to sue us, and we were wondering whether and how we should respond. And I said, now that you're informed, I hope that that, you know, I hope, and she says, well, it's actually going to change our strategy now. And I said, really? She says, yeah, at first we weren't really sure. We were a little bit worried that maybe we should try to settle or negotiate with this guy. She goes, but now that you've told me this, she's like, I think we're just going to ignore him. And I said, if you receive a letter from Mikey Weinstein that says I'm going to sue you, I so said, do you know what you need to do with that letter? And she said, she was like, what, what? And I said, you need to wad it up into a ball, find the nearest trash receptacle, and do your very best Michael Jordan, All right?" And I said, that is the, the most important response that you can have to a, a letter from Mikey Weinstein threatening to sue. Um, and so they ignored him, and, you know, so that's that. Did I see a question? Yeah, yes.
6: This was similar to what I was getting at with the football thing. Is the motivation behind it you mentioned that he can fundraise off of it but the bigger goal is to spook other people who might be tempted to you know what I mean Like the idea is to scare people or to create a chill is that correct? yes
1: thank you for bringing that up so so Mikey Weinstein much like another organization who has a similar sort of uh, uh, sounding name the FFRF So that he's got the MRFF the Military Religious Freedom Foundation the FFRF is the at least appropriately named for them, Freedom from Religion Foundation. Right. So as their name entails, they're actually advocating for a country that has no religion at all. Right. So they just they they want religion completely wiped out of the public sphere, out of you know uh, uh, government spaces, public spaces, etc. They want religion banished only into the four walls of a a house of worship. Um, but the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Uh, we get asked this, that question a lot, uh, uh, a lot more about them because uh, they're a lot bigger and more active than Mikey Weinstein is. And the question is usually, um, you know, why do they do this or how successful are they at doing this? So here's their model. Because we actually had an intern research this a number of years ago. So here's their model. They send roughly 2,000 letters. W- 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 in, legal, in legal speak, we call them demand letters. So it's a letter demanding, I demand that you do X or I will sue you, right? So they send roughly 2,000 demand letters every year. But by their own financial disclosures, because they have to file a 990 just like every other nonprofit, by their own financial disclosures, their budget only allows them to bring maybe five lawsuits in any given year. Five top, I mean, five is probably on the high end, right? So they send 2,000 letters saying, I'm going to sue you if you don't do what I say. But they only have a budget that allows them to bring five. So, your lo- the next logical question should be, why- then why do they send two thousand? If they why wouldn't you know why wouldn't they only send five letters because they only have a budget to bring five? Well, because they know, right? If I send two thousand letters and I get a one percent success rate in getting people to do what I what I what I demand that they do, without me filing a lawsuit, one percent success rate. Do you know have any math whizzes in here? One percent of two thousand. 20, right? Their budget only allows five lawsuits. Let's say they bring five lawsuits and they win all five lawsuits in a year. They're still beating that by a 4 to 1 just by sending the letters. It's the cost of a postage stamp. All they have to do is spend the cost of sending 2,000 letters via U.S. mail, and if they get 1% success rate, and I guarantee you their success rate is higher than 1%, right? It, it, it may be... 25, 30% success rate, right? Maybe even higher. So imagine that they're just playing the numbers game. If I can just flood the zone with as many of these demand letters as I can, I don't have to worry about I don't have to follow up with a lawsuit, right? That's a fire and forget missile. Half, almost half of the people I send a letter to are going to do it just based on fear and, la- and misinformation, and just, oh my gosh, I don't want to get sued. Better do what they'll say, and then they do it, right? And then what they do is they take their budget and they focus those the the budget that they have on the five cases they really really care about, right? And that's that's in essence how they operate. Mikey Weinstein is very similar. That's how he operates, right? He's, cause if I can, and, and, he, and then what does he do when, when the DoD does capitulates, right? I mean he he. He crows about it, right? Oh, look, I, you know, record-breaking victory for the MRFF. We got you know, I don't know Scott Air Force Base to you know, do what I told him to do in record-breaking time. It only took two hours. Um, I remember a number of years ago, um, it was at, is Shaw the one in South Carolina? Yeah. 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 So it was at Shaw, and there was a nativity scene on base. Right, and Mikey sent a demand letter to Shaw Air Force Base commanding officer. Said you've got a religious fundamentalist display on your, you know, on government property. I demand that you remove it immediately, or I will sue. Right, and they just, Whoa, you know, so they immediately removed it. And uh, before I even had a chance to like try to educate the Shaw Air Force Base commanders on the law and the Constitution. I mean, it was already gone. So it's like, at that point, there's not much you can do now, right? And so a reporter from Fox News calls me and says, Well, Mike, what's, what's your response to this? What's your reaction? And I said, Well, you know, apparently, if you want to get the United States military to react quickly, all you got to do is tell them that there's a baby Jesus sitting outside the front gate. And, and, and boy, you know, talk about quick reaction. You know, that's your QRF. There's baby Jesus sitting right outside the front gate. You know, boop, you know, quick reaction force. They're they're on it. Um, but you tell them that our, you know, our nuclear arsenal is lagging behind an inspection standards or whatever. It's like, ah, you know, we'll get to it, you know. <laughs> got to do our due diligence. Yeah, so, um, do
5: you guys use the press as things to potentially take on them? You know, if he makes an announcement like
1: there's not much we can do because I don't, I, you know, I don't control the U.S. government, right? So I, I, all I can do is either try to, you know, if I get there in time, right? If I find out about it in time, I can I, I can offer to educate them and tell them what the law actually says, not what that guy says it is. Um, if not, honestly, my greatest tool is ridicule, you know, public shame and ridicule, you know, which is actually very effective. Um, so, uh, uh, and I and I don't like. I, only reason I get away with it is because I, I still put on the uniform, right? I still serve. So I'm like, look, it's it's my people that are doing this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, I, when I got invited to testify before Congress and they're asking me, like, well, why is this such a pro- why are we still having problems with the First Amendment? I said, look, because of people like me, because I'm a I'm a JAG, right? I had to go through Naval Justice School. Naval Justice School is 10 weeks long, so almost three months of like 08 to 1700, like, like crash course, like law school, like like military law school, okay? And I said, out of those 10 weeks of military law and military justice, do you know how much time we, we spent on the First Amendment? The entire First Amendment, not just. Not just religious freedom, but also freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. so I had one guest two days. No, 60 minutes. Six zero minutes on the First Amendment, all right? Out of 10 weeks, six zero minutes. And so I mentioned during lunch, I said, so what did I start doing? I started developing relationships with people at DOD. And I started saying, look, I'm free, of, I, I'm free. It doesn't cost you a dime. Bring me in. I'll, I'll supplement what you're being given. You know who took me up on it? The Army Chief of Chaplains. It's the only one. The U.S. Army Chief of Chaplains said, we'd love to have you as a, as, as a legal advisor and a subject matter expert to advise us on, on these things. You know, If there's a conflict of interest, if you guys are representing somebody, you know, first comes comes up, then obviously I'm not going to advise the Chief of Chaplains when I'm also representing a client, that's a huge conflict of interest. But that's where the wall of separation really does exist. Um, but and then you know, and then um, to the army's credit, they asked me to come down to Fort Jackson and uh, to the Army Chaplain School and give a religious freedom, you know, uh, refresher course down there. So so the chaplains are getting it, but the Jags are just like. You know, oh, we don't see these issues very often. I'm like, yeah, I'm not. But when you do get them wrong, it's like headline, you know, headline making news. Okay, I know I need to move on. I said I was going to finish this up here. I'm going to be done in, in 10 minutes. All right. So, what can we do? All right. This is where I wrap it all up. What can we do? And I really, I thought about this. I prayed about this. Here are the four points that I came up with. All right. One, be bold. All right. Be bold. The battle is, is not yours, all right? You, it's not mine, you know? I mean, people thank me for doing what I do. I, it's not, I, I didn't know I wanted to go to law school until six months before I went to law school. So this is not what I like set out for myself. It was literally, I, I operate, and this probably is not theologically sound, but this is how I operate. I operate out of fear that God will basically look at me and say, oh, you don't want to do it anymore? Fine. I'll find somebody else, you know, Psst. and then like I, th- that's honestly what, what you know. And so I do what I do so that you all can do what you do, you know. Somebody, I mean, I think it was the chaplain back there that said, "Thank you for doing what you do." I I, 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 no, it's thank you for doing what you do. I do what I do so that you can do what you do. All right? That, that's really all it is. It's, um, but. But what good does it do any of us if you all won't be bold? I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but I'm just saying. Just be—you've got—you know what your rights are, but you will lose your rights if you don't stand for them. Right? That's how you lose freedom. You don't lose freedom because somebody takes it by force. You lose freedom because you relinquish it. Um, take a stand, you know, uh, when the time—when it's time to stand, right? Uh, be courageous because courage is contagious. Boy, I'll tell you, when that, when that first person stands, that's, it. you know, we talked about the Red Scare earlier, and we remember the domino theory? You guys remember the domino theory from back then? That's the domino theory. When one person is courageous and takes a stand, boom, that's the domino theory. Um, uh, going back to being bold and, and remembering that this battle is not ours, a lot of people also ask me. You know, people kind of recognize I'm, I'm stoic, but I'm also like a, an eternal optimist, right? I, I, I don't get worn down by what I do, and people think assume like, man, it must be so, just depressing to see this every day. And I said, yeah, I guess first of all, I'm a marine, okay? So I'm wired for warfare, right? It's just that's just my normal operating uh, condition, and then two, like. The more the odds are stacked against me, the happier I get. Like that's, that's just how I am. Uh, I, I would much rather be the underdog than be the favorite. Um, and, and maybe that's why probably one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes of all time, I think it was Mere Christianity, or maybe it's from the abolition of man. But it's when he says, um, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Enemy-occupied territory. But we must never forget that we've been called by the one true king to embark upon a great campaign of sabotage. Right? And, I said, and so I just tell people, I, I, I know we use the word conservative because it implies that we're trying to conserve, or retain, or hold on to something. And I certainly understand that. And I get that, that there's something that's being lost. I said, but really, my mindset is not of I'm trying to hold on to what I've got. Is that I, I'm already seeing myself as behind enemy lines and I'm trying to sabotage what the enemy is doing, right? The enemy has taken a, taken a foothold, and I'm here to sabotage their efforts and his efforts. Um, so that's, that's my operating sort of philosophy. And I realize that's not for everybody, but that's, that, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning, right? When, 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 my, clock, when my alarm goes off on Monday morning, I, I, I'm usually excited to go to work because I know I get, I get one more chance at sabotage. Um, and uh, finally, what can we do? Tell others, right? Tell others. Education is the most important thing that First Liberty does. If I w- if I were to represent Coach Kennedy and win his case, and not say a word about it, right? People say, "Ah, isn't that kind of glory hungry?" You know, going on Fox News and going you know, going, you know, meeting President Trump and all that. And I said, "It is." If that's your motivation for doing it, right, is to is to get glory and to Draw attention to yourself, but I'm doing it. I'm trying to raise attention and awareness because what happens is the following: If I win Coach Kennedy's case and I say nothing about it, I'm going to end up like that framed Supreme Court thing on that guy, that attorney in in Jackson County, Alabama. I can't. I don't know. I don't know the name of that case. I couldn't even tell you what that case is about. What if it's like the most important case that's ever been decided? Right? I don't know a thing about it. But if I win Coach Kennedy's case. Right? And we shout it from the rooftops. You do have rights. You can take a stand for these rights, and you can win. Right? With if your bold stand, and our help, and the help of people like Paul Clement and others like him, we can we can fight these battles and we can win. What do you think the the, the amplifying effect that that has across the landscapes? People begin to say, you know what? Coach Kennedy is right. You know. Or the the opposite can happen. If they can, can, I've lost count of how many football coaches, baseball coaches, basketball coaches from across the country. Hey, I'm just an old baseball coach from South Carolina. I take a knee after every game. Uh, Am I going to get fired? Am I allowed to do that? You know? You got some guy from you know from Boston. You know? Hey, I like to play a little basketball with my boys in Boston, and after the game we pray. You know? Can the school district fire me? He's like, um, no, they—they're not supposed to, you know. Let's let's talk, right? So what happens is when we raise awareness and educate people, they begin to start thinking about—is that right? You know that. So this is what I teach my kids. Remember the homeschool dad? So I'm kind of a nerd on these things, but I teach my kids. I said, look, anytime somebody tries to offer you a a like a, a legal or a value proposition on something, right? The following is the law, or the following is the way it is, or whatever, I, I said there's always two questions. Always two questions, right? Says who, and by what standard, right? Says who, and by what standard, right? And if they say, says the government, and by the government standard, I'm skeptical, right? I'm immediately skeptical, right? And so, um so my final word of encouragement to all of you is from the book of uh Habakkuk all right and I read this fairly recently and it and it really encouraged me, and you're gonna think and this guy's morbid if he thinks this is encouraging, but this is my this is what encouraged the guy who loves to be surrounded right um uh Habakkuk one chapter one verses two through eleven right so just. Please bear with me here. It says, Habakkuk says, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Boy, if I had a penny for every time, I'd heard somebody say something very similar to me, right? But here's God's answer to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when, you're, when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's, earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Right? So people say, how on earth is that encouraging to you? And it's encouraging to me because it tells me there's nothing that's happening that he doesn't already know about. That he is not absolutely 100% in control of. Right. That he hasn't foreseen, that he hasn't foreknown, and that and, and, and I'm sitting here like shaking my saying, you know, how can you let this happen? Don't you see what's happening? He's like, what do you mean do I do? You know, it's, it reminds me of Job. When Job was shaking his fist at God, and God and Job, what did God say to Job? Where were you when I created the universe, right? And now you're questioning me? You know, and so, yes, I see injustice every single day. I see cases like the ones that we've talked about. I see our rights being taken from us. I see a bitter, impetuous people marching across our land. Right, seizing up territory, and I'll let you fill in whatever you know uh, uh, metaphor you want for the Chaldeans there. Um, But but God is saying, I'm. Don't you see what I'm doing? Just I'm here. I know what's going on. So ultimately, we don't put our faith in lawyers. (laughs) We don't put our faith in our commanding officers and our president. We don't put our faith in our country. We put our faith in God, you know. And then we, and then we set about the work before us. We do what we're called to do, and we leave the results up to Him. Um, So that's that's why I do what I do. And that concludes my remarks. And there's my reminder, if you want. Um, And with that. I'm happy to answer a couple of questions. Yeah. All right? We've got time for a couple of questions? Yes. Yes, sir.
4: Um, I got a couple of
1: questions.
4: Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to your first slide: uh, the courts, legislation, and media, the media, and media. Um, so litigation, legislation, and narr- narration. Yeah. Um, powerful. Powerful tools. Um, I think what, uh, I can't think of another word, what disheartens me um, is that it seems like the other side has such powerful, well honed, such a powerful, well honed armory in each of these. And I mean I can't I can't turn on the radio or watch TV or read a paper without feeling like it's a fire hydrant. And it's overwhelming. Um on a, a, there's not really a question in <laughs> it, I guess. Um,
1: they are fierce and terrifying. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves. Right? Yeah. Yes. They gather they gather prisoners like sand. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. So we're being told that the the other side they are they're better than us, okay? And that's um boy, it makes my job a light a lot easier when I look in the mirror and I wake up knowing and I say uh, the left. Again, however you want to characterize the left but the left they are more organized they're better funded they are better credentialed they own the airwaves they own the culture you know Um, but that's again that's why I have to take on the mindset of you know Ho Chi Minh and not the French army at DMB, Bien Phu, right mm-hmm. they, they they're better trained than me they're better equipped than me um, but I and I have to you know one of the things at First Liberty is we love we have four core values okay winning is our first core value most people are like winning you're a ministry yes okay but I, I don't exist to lose all right <laughs> okay. I um, everybody loves a winner as they say, so uh, winning is our first core value. Integrity. We're going to win, but we got to win the right way. Humility. It's not about us. Okay. We winning is not about bringing us glory. All right. And then fourth, innovation. God loves innovation. He's a God. Of, he's a creative God. He's an innovative God, and we have to think outside the box. We have to think. As- I'm, I'm a student of maneuver warfare. Okay. Um, We have to think asymmetrically. We are up against. We cannot do attrition style civil warfare. Line them up and knock them down. All right. We have to think. You know, centers of gravity, critical vulnerabilities, all the stuff that I I loved as a marine. So that's, um, you know, that that's the approach that we take. And so we just recognize it straight up. Yes, you are absolutely right. They're better funded, better equipped, better trained, better prepared, better organized, better everything, except they don't have truth on their side.
4: And, and reason, most of the time reason, um, carries a heavier punch. Not always. I mean, I, and I speak, I speak not, as a, not as an attorney. I speak as someone who you know, lives mm-hmm. in the marketplace in the world, I'm a I'm a healthcare chaplain. Um, so, my other question, which is related, um, you were saying in the marketplace um, uh, for the for the woke culture, profit is no longer the agenda. Um, my it seems to me like it's still the agenda. The corporations. Who are driven by the woke mentality are convinced that if they don't they're gonna they're gonna lose they're gonna lose um, business and that's why they I mean it's, it's it's out of it seems to me like it's out of fear more than it is out of piety
1: Yeah, well, it's absolutely driven by fear, right? I mean, fear is one of the most powerful motivators uh, in the human dimension. The only thing more powerful than fear is what? Love. Love. Okay. Perfect love casts out fear, Um, and so, um, but if you don't know the source of love, then how can you, you know, how can you possibly have a proper understanding of that? Again, here I go trying, you know. I gotta, stop, I gotta stop. I gotta stop playing, uh, playing chaplain here, or just stop playing. Uh, but um, uh, they are motivated by by fear, and they do think that uh, capitulating to, you know, to the far left is is, is going to
4: ultimately
1: cause them to be on the right side of history. Well, right?
4: and they and they feel the same way I was saying. I mean, they they've got you know the courts, legislation, the media, it's all, it's a stacked deck. Yeah. So why even try and fight it just, I mean, in Kansas City where I work, um, a year ago at this time, probably a good amount of the, of the billboards, you drive through the city, the billboards would, would say, um, uh, Commerce Bank reminds you to social, social distance. Um uh, you know wh- whatever um another bank another institution school um, says uh, save lives run a mask I mean it was it, it, none of it was because they really believed it right I think I think it was because it's because Commerce Bank right. saw an opportunity that, you know, this is where this is yeah. what makes us look good.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna sound very 2017-ish, but it's called virtue signaling, signaling, right? Which is yes, yeah. um, yes, that's right. It was, it was, you know, it's virtue signaling, and it's exactly what it is. But uh, I encourage you all to look up uh, somebody named I think his first name was Vitali Vitali Lysenko. Anybody familiar with Lysenko? Lysenkoism. Lysenko. So Lysenko was a Russian scientist during the uh, the rise and height of the Soviet uh, of the Soviet Union, right? During, when when uh, uh, Lenin and, and uh, Stalin et cetera had taken over, and he was a huge. Uh, I I won't get into all the details, but let's just put it this way. He he was. He was a proponent of a particular scientific theory that is now sort of ridiculed and, and, and even at the time was very uh, unorthodox and outside the norm, outside the sort of the accepted scientific community. And this goes back to that Emma Green article I was telling you guys about with, the, you know, the, the more liberal and progressive people are, the more likely they are to reject what science is now telling us about uh, epidemiology and, and virology and things like that, and they're saying it doesn't matter, uh, herd immunity is not a real thing, you know, you, you, we have to quarantine now, and blah, 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 right? So, well, Lysenko was similar, in, except that his was based on, on agriculture and studying. He believed that you could essentially, uh, I'm probably not doing it true justice, but this is a rough paraphrase, that you could sort of graft a potato onto a, you know, A tree and make a potato tree, and it would grow potatoes. And then, hey, we can just feed the whole country. You know, well, that's not how really how it works, right? That goes against uh, Gregor Mendel, who's who's famous in his work on genetics. He basically proved that you don't you can't do it like that, right? You've got dominant traits and and and, um, uh, non dominant traits, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but Lysenko, the whole point I'm making about Lysenko, though, is that his particular brand of science was tickling the ears of the Soviet commissars. And it was exactly what they wanted to hear. And because of that, and because he was a scientist, they promoted him. And then he became the top scientist in all of Russia. And, and basically, what, what it, was, it was, well, this is, what, uh, oh, so, you know, this is what we will do, because this is what our top scientist has said is the truth. Right? Remember what I said I asked my kids? Who says, and by what standard? Well, who says, Lysenko. Lysenko says, and by what standard? By his standard, right? And it was called Lysenkoism. And Lysenkoism resulted in a massive famine in the Soviet Union It killed millions of people because it was totally bunk science. It was completely wrong. But it was what the government officials wanted to hear. It told them exactly what they wanted to hear, which is that our methods are actually the right methods, and we're doing the right thing. And, and so this must be right, right? It was a circular reasoning. And, that's, and, and and so I've been walking around you know kind of preaching, if you will, that we're in the midst of 21st century lyynncalism, you know uh, And you can apply it to whether you want to apply it to COVID or you want to apply it to social issues or whatever. It's just, no, 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 this is correct because this is what the person who we've deemed to be the closest aligned to our view says is correct. And going back to what I said earlier, so why are we fighting Because we have objective truth, right. Um, and as long as you believe in objective truth and you seek objective truth, the truth shall set you free, right? And so, um, it's one of the very first things they teach you in law school. Right? What is the law? What is the purpose of the law? And I and I do I teach mock trial courses for for like high school age kids, and I always ask them, what's the role of the law? What's the purpose of the law? All right? A lot of them say, oh, to you know, to make sure that guilty people are put in prison. Nope. To make sure innocent people don't go to prison. Nope. You're talking specifics. What is the overall goal of the law? What is the law? It's the search for truth. That's really all it is. That's every rule in the law. Every rule of evidence, every rule of procedure, all of it is geared towards ensuring that we find the truth. And so uh, the law itself can be a very noble undertaking if you don't lose sight of that, right? That we're here to find truth. And, uh, And there is such thing as objective truth. So... I either have people who are really, really tired, or really, like really, because I got like in the Marine Corps, if you got if you were, if you started to fall asleep, you had to stand uh, during the class. So, yes, sir. Just I all day into today, so I'm tired of <laughs>
6: uh, I guess I mentioned, but uh, I'm a hospice chaplain, and so I was in a debate with some of my colleagues, and uh, we were mentioning the fact that with all this low culture. When we get to a point where perhaps medicare medicaid who funds most of hospice might eventually say well to have a chaplain being paid for by medicare and medicaid isn't that uh breaking the establishment cause separating the church religion and, I, and i'm not so sure that would happen i said i'm not sure i think that would be it but i was i was personally more concerned that perhaps and maybe not the government enforcing but if you're a chaplain from a certain denomination who's maybe not as woke as the rest of it, maybe your company or the government might say, well, you're not qualified to service patients because you won't agree with all of the current things. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yes,
1: and thank you. I know we mentioned that at lunch, and I said, please ask me that during Q&A because it's it's an important uh, issue that I want to talk about. So uh, it's really two questions that I'll address in turn. So one is, is being a government-funded chaplain, let's just put it that way, right? a government or taxpayer-funded chaplain at violation of the Establishment Clause. And uh, uh, when I teach at the chaplain school at Fort Jackson, when I taught at the Naval Academy, when I teach religious liberty around the country, this is a question that comes up repeatedly. And um, the answer is no. It's not an Establishment Clause violation, but it's not necessarily for the reason why people think. All right. So I'll give you a quick crash course on this, and I'll try to make it really quick because it's actually, it can be like a full law school lecture. Um, there was a case in the early 1980s brought by two Harvard Law School students who were learning about the Establishment Clause. And they learned if the government formally establishes religion, that's an Establishment Clause violation. And they learned, well, what does it mean to formally establish religion? Right? And they started talking about, it. well, what about if the government is paying for chaplains, right, paying their salaries? Paying for, you know, subsidizing their homes, right, through a parsonage exemption. Um, if they're in the military, subsidizing their clothing, right, or uniforms, uh, subsidizing their food through BAS, right, BAH, all these types of things. Wouldn't that be government, taxpayer funded religion? And the answer is, well, yes, of course it is, right? And so these two Harvard law students said, well, that violates the establishment clause. That's what our law professor told us. And they filed a lawsuit. And the lawsuit became known as Katkoff versus Marsh, and the lawsuit went all the way to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which is one level below the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Second Circuit said these law students are correct, right? That um, military chaplains, uh, the military chaplaincy, and other forms of government subsidized chaplaincy. Absolutely. That is the establishment of organized religion uh, by the definition that the courts use. And ordinarily, that would violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. All right? And then they said, but, you know, it's kind of like, but wait, there's more. All right? But wait, the military is different. Right? They didn't address hospice chaplains, but I think you're OK. Um, the military is different. The military is a unique society, a unique subset of society. And the Constitution actually obligates Congress to create a military. It says right there in the Constitution, Congress shall raise up an army and an Right, So Congress is obligated to create a military. And because Congress is obligated to create a military, there's this other clause in the First Amendment called the Free Exercise Clause. Congress is also obligated to ensure that the Free Exercise Clause is protected. And chaplains are the way that we ensure that service members who are often, at least at times in our history, serve involuntarily, right? Through conscription, right, the draft or whatever, who are often sent to places far away from their places of worship. So when I was in Afghanistan, I was asked by chaplain earlier, where were you in Afghanistan? I was in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. I guarantee you there was not a Christian church within a Maybe 2,000 miles of where I was, right? I had no ability to freely exercise my religion in a place of worship, other than through the chaplain, right? That was that was the only way avenue I had. And people, go, why can't you just do it by yourself? Why can't you exercise religion by yourself? I say, okay, that, I mean, in the same way, why can't you just teach yourself the law, right? You I mean, you had a law professor, didn't you, All right? And so. Um, so you need to have a, a, you know, you, most, most religious orders believe in some sort of hierarchy where there's a teacher and there are students, right, where there's a, a shepherd, right, and, and so on and so forth. So, so anyway, that was the gist of the, the Cat Call versus March, March decision, which is that um, sort of, no, it doesn't violate the Constitution to have. And then we've had other cases where we had legislative chaplains, so they weren't military chaplains, but they were legislative chaplains. And that was challenged, well, how can you have a legislative chaplain uh, who offers a prayer in front of the legislature? Isn't that establishing religion? It's a government function. It's a government-paid chaplain. And they said, well, when the First Amendment was drafted, the day it was drafted, they actually took records and notes. And in the records of the Constitutional Convention, when they actually wrote the First Amendment, it said that they had a chaplain pray before they drafted it. So surely they didn't think that the thing we just did, yeah, we need to write that out, you know. We need to get rid of that. Well, that thing we just did, that prayer thing, uh-uh, you know, that's gone. No, they didn't do that. So they said, so legislative chaplains also consistent with the concept. So why is cons- that by the coach's case? Um, because he's not, a, he's not a, uh, a chaplain, right? He's a coach. So that's a different function. So, so the second question, though, Uh you mentioned that your fear is much more that there might be certain denominations uh, or you know certain religious beliefs that would be maybe more conservative that they're more likely to try to get rid of as opposed to just getting rid of all chaplains that is happening before our very eyes. Yeah. I, I guarantee you, and how do I know this because um, somehow I, I don't ask me how this happened but so after I testified back in March in front of the House Armed Services Committee on this issue of extremism in the armed forces, right? We've all had our extremism stand-down training, we, all right? And I and I testified before, and I said, look, whatever Congress decides to do is what Congress decides to do, and when Congress says jump, the Pentagon says how high, right? Okay, we get all that. Please, though, whatever you do, protect the First Amendment rights of our service members, right? Do not make it a crime to believe. In that marriage is defined as between one man and one woman. Do not make it a crime in the military for somebody who believes, especially a chaplain, who believes that uh, God creates male and female, and that once he creates you male, you're a male, and once he creates you a female, you're a female. If you believe that, that should not be a crime to believe that, right? That should not be an extreme, you should not be labeled an extremist for believing that. so that was sort of the the, the gist of my, testi- my uh, testimony at the hearing, and then like a month later, I get uh, uh, invited to participate in the DOD's combating extremism working group. So this is the uh, the working group that it was the Secretary of Defense put together to help identify and get rid of extremists from the military. And I thought, well, clearly I didn't do a good enough job of throwing out my conservative credentials during my hearings that they now. I mean, if you look at the list, it's, it, there's articles out there about this. They're like, every person on this list is like Southern Poverty Law Center, if you're familiar with who they are, right? Southern Poverty Law Center, Southern Poverty Law Center, ACLU, ACLU, and you keep going down the list, and then there's like Mike Berry, First Liberty Institute, and these articles are like incredulous, like, how did that guy get on there? Like, he's not, you know, he's he's the conservative. How? Did, yeah, how did they let how did they let a conservative get in there? Yeah, well, and there, I think what I, I honestly, to this day, I don't. The, you know how I found out that I was on the working group? A reporter called me to get my reaction to being the name of the working group, and I said, I, my, "My what?" And he goes, "You're on the working group. Did you know that?" And I said, "My reaction is, I had no idea I was on the working group. Who like, who invited me?" And he's like, "The Secretary of Defense." And I was like, "I haven't received the invitation yet, but thanks for letting me know." Um, so anyway. Um, what they're to get to your point, what they're looking at is they want to expand the definition of extremism, right? They want to build. So the existing definition, which has been around for years, is if you use, advocate, or threaten violence to accomplish your ideological agenda, right? That's always been the definition of extremism, right? And I 100% agree with that. If you want to use violence to accomplish your objective, yes, you're an extremist. You don't have any place in the military, right? The only people you get to do violence against are the enemy of the United States. That's it. Right? And now they're saying, well, we need to expand that definition for people, and I am kid you not, if you, if you have questions or doubts about the election, right, you're an extremist. If, what did the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief say last month? Who is the number one threat to national security right now? White supremacists are the number one threat. To, not Iran, not China, not Russia, not North Korea. Not nuclear proliferation, not cyber attacks. Why, why, you know, Bubba in a pickup truck with an American flag. That's that's the number one threat to national security, according to the Commander in Chief. And so, um, they the working group said they're going to monitor social media activity, right? They're actually going to start monitoring social media activity to see is anybody out there. And then and then they start talking about and this is what my ears perked up. They said you know things like if people advocate for, because you always have to listen to for, the, for the buzzwords, and you'll know, they'll use euphemisms. The left will use euphemisms, and you have to know how to translate what they're actually saying. We, we, we want to monitor for any activity uh, that indicates that people will be willing to uh, discriminate against reproductive freedom. What are they really saying? If you're pro-life, you're an extremist, right? Uh, or anybody that would seek to discriminate against um, uh, uh, full equality. What does that mean? Mm. L-
3: LGBT, right, LGBT,
1: LGBT. LGBT, right? If you advocate against LGBT in, you know, inclusion and equality. In other words, if you advocate for... Right, so, and, and so my point was, hey guys, you know, you know that there are entire like, denominations of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, who believe these things. And you're you're essentially going to label all of them wholesale extremists. And they're like, what? There are people who still believe that, you know? And 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 so. Just
3: to be fair, when we disagree, they do call that violence. Look, and that's that's what I was going to add is you're right. The the current definition of extremism includes an act of violence. And the language that I've even received in my conversation with other like uh, healthcare chaplains, who and God love them, I love them. Are LGBTQ defined violence as an
1: adverse position to their state? Yes, that's right. Silence is violence. That's the that's the phrase. Silence is violence, right? And I mean, I I'm I'm not that old, but gosh, I grew up when it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know and um, or, I grew up in an era when I may disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to believe whatever you believe. Right. Right? And I te- when I testified, I said, I don't care what color you are, I don't care what color your skin is, what color your hair is, whether you have hair, right? I don't care how tall you are, how short you are, If as long as you can accomplish the mission, I will serve with you. Right? I will serve with you if you can accomplish the mission. And, um, Uh, You know, and and the response is no, 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 no. no. But, but you like don't you agree that you know if you espouse a view against these things, and that's what they're saying. If you advocate for these things, you are doing harm. You're doing physical harm and 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 dignitary harm, as they refer to it as well. So they also it actually say it's physical harm, right? It's it's actually because it causes a physical reaction in the person. And, and I'm just my response is, well, then anytime somebody uses GD or JC, right, why can't I claim that, that harms my, that's dignitary harm against me, right? That offends me. And they always just scoff and say, oh, you know, people use those words all the time. You know, come on, what are you supposed to do? It's like, well, okay. So we, so we all agree that we can't, that, that we are going to play this game where it's a one way ratchet. <laughs> As long as I just want everybody to be honest, it's a one-way ratchet, right? Um, so to answer your question, yes, I, I think that is, that is a fight that is coming. I know because I'm in regular contact with endorsers from Nick Math, the National uh, Conference of Ministry and Armed Forces, and I know that there is a concerted effort underfoot underway to, um, to change, change chaplain accession standards. All right, that because again, what did I say earlier? That they're smart. They're better organized. They're smarter than us. They're far more strategic thinking than we are. All right, and they've figured it out. What we need the ones who the chaplains who are already in, nothing we can do about them. We just hope that they mess up, that we can kick them out. Well, what do we have to do? We change the funnel. We change the funnel, the accession funnel, to make it to where uh, the, the the really conservative. We have to be able to identify. And sniff out the conservative ones and make that now the sort of the undesirable, right? And and, and so if we change the, and, and so they're constantly tweaking with it. And you hear this all the time coming up at the Nick Math conferences and whatnot of how do we change our standards for chaplains? Definition of a chaplain is constantly being in, in the House, and that's where on the legislation piece, I get members constantly sending me, hey, they're looking at, uh, you know, Armed Services Subcommittee, Personnel, Military Personnel Subcommittee is looking at changing the definition of chaplain again. I'm like, again? Like, why do we keep changing the definition, you know? And I know it's because there are groups that are lobbying to just just slightly, it's how do you boil a bullfrog? You just turn the temperature up a little bit at a time. right? so you can just get a little tweak here. A couple years later, you come back, you get a little tweak here. Before you know it, you've completely eliminated religion from the definition of chaplain where a chaplain is now a glorified camp counselor, you know? Um, and that's what's happening to our chaplains. So.
3: So I, I think for me, Mike, I mean, I, sometimes I'm skeptical of the government. very everything
1: I just said? Yeah,
3: yeah, I'm, well, <laughs> me, But you're, you're right. You're somebody who's had these conversations, so it's one. But, you I guess the question for me, and I think for us as chaplains, is like really, what do we do about that and what do we do as individuals in our ministry to protect religious freedom for other people, which is our job? And I think this recognition of the chaplaincy as a unique partner with pastors and missionaries as a chaplain is who's on the front line of religious freedom for everybody else.
1: So the question is, what do you guys do as chaplains when you see these issues, when you confront these, these things, right? So, um... Generally speaking, my advice is just to um, man, speak truth, right? Be salt and light and speak truth. And then when you actually do have a real issue, um, so the, 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 the Bible talks about uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken, right? And that's usually given in the context of marriage. But I use that in the context of, of, of what you, your question, right? When you have a real religious liberty issue, um, the first thing you have to do uh, for all those is, is call Mark. Right? Every time a chaplain talks to me, calls me, and says, "Hey, I need you, I need your help. I need your advice, whatever." the First thing I say is, "Have you talked to your endorser? Who is your endorser, and have you talked to them?" There's a pretty good chance I actually know the endorser, right? And so um, I don't want the endorser to get a shotgun blast to the face or be blindsided by it. So I'm always like, "Call," you know. Mark, or so-and-so, you need to talk to them first, and then if the two of you agree, then we can talk together. And that's the core of three strands. The chaplain, the lawyer, and the endorser. If you don't have those three, that three-legged stool, the whole thing is gonna collapse like a house of cards. So you have to have, um, because if a chaplain has a legal issue, and I try to help them, but I don't have the 100% buy-in and the unequivocal support of the endorser, it's, we're not, we can't go in, we're done all right so um and, I've, and I've, I've been in that situation before where the endorser wasn't 100 percent behind the chaplain and it was it was not easy um because the, the the we were being second guessed and monday morning quarterbacked every step of the way um so i can't have that so you gotta ha- you gotta talk to mark and uh and then if mark and you both agree that this is an issue that we need to talk to Mike about, then I'm, I'm more than happy to get involved if it's a religious liberty issue. But beyond that, I mean, just, I mean, remember why, remember why y- you serve and do what you do, you know? So, we got time for one more? One more, I think. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I hate I to know. not do it. Yeah. I had
1: a song. Ex- it's, it's the plug to come to dinner. If you want to ask questions, you've got to come to dinner. So. Somebody who's not coming to dinner can ask that, right? No, got to go ahead. No, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, a
6: group from Freedom From Religion came to uh, have the county remove me as a chaplain, or at least change my name to a spiritual coordinator. Okay. And which, I don't know why that would be a difference there, but uh, and they went in and met with, uh, one of the county commissioners came over and went in and met with the sheriff. And I'm was on, on the chaplain for the FBI in that region and for the sheriff. And we have an extremely intelligent sheriff. That doesn't always happen in the south. But uh, <laughs> we have an extremely intelligent sheriff. And so was his name
1: said, Roscoe P. Coltrane? Okay. <laughs> yeah, sir. No, sir, not back right down
6: And so uh, he called me into like okay. the kind office. You know, he said, I'd like to meet my chaplain. And then kind of frowned, you know, because he said chaplain. He said, I'd like to meet my chaplain. He said, Chaplain, can I see your FBI credentials? I said, Yes, sir. I pulled them out My I handed them to it. He opened them up and he said, you do know, see that this says that the Justice Department has designated him a chaplain. The United States Justice Department says that he is a chaplain. I can't go against that. <laughs> they never came back.
3: <laughs>
6: they never came back. We never heard of them. I heard from them again. And so there are times when you can make a stand. And even though it's a little silly when...
1: No, that's asymmetric warfare. That's asymmetric warfare. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So instead of trying to fight at the old school style and just saying, "Well, we'll see you in court," you know, yeah, they're happy to do that. Um, but instead, you you think you know, our fourth core values, innovation, right? You think outside the box. You get a little asymmetrical. I'm just saying. You get a little. You think outside the box and you say, your beef's not with me, your beef's with the Department of Justice. I suggest you talk to the Attorney General.
0: You know, I want to add to that just really quick. So there were two situations that happened with me when I was still active duty. And one was I, you know, the good old days when you used to wave traffic into the base and so on. You know, now they look at IDs all the time. But, you know, I, I would, I was the cops' chaplain. So, I said I would like to do that. I'd like to do that for the cops. I want to do that at least three times a week uh, during their lunch time, so they can get lunch, and I'll wave traffic. So I, I went out, waved traffic, sweated like old gang. Uh, old, oh my gosh! In, at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and uh, and I would always be in my my uh, uh, blues, but not not the. Not class A's, fully, but anyway. So they gave me a beret, and they said, "Yeah, we want to, if you're going to be at the gate, you got to wear a beret." And I said, "Well, what do you want me to put on the, on the insignia then? My my uh, captain's captain's rank?" And they said, "No, you're a chaplain, right?" And I said, "Yeah, we'll put your cross there." So you know, so sometimes you know, here I was lessening my opportunity to show I'm a chaplain by even asking that question, and then the other time was you know where the for those of you who have been in the military for a while when they were getting into you couldn't call it a christmas tree lighting ceremony anymore you had to call it a a holiday holiday tree lighting and then then i think they even got rid of holiday started doing tree well anyway no you couldn't use tree and and oh my gosh so then it was just a well yeah so anyway yeah, what's that? Festivus. Festi- yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, anyway, and the Festivus the rest of us, I guess. Anyway, um, so the the commander when I came in to brief about our our whatever it was being called at that time, he said, "What is that again, Chaplain?" I said, "It's the da, 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 da. And he said, "No, it's a Christmas tree lighting ceremony." And I'm going, okay. Okay, and uh, that's, that'd be great. Yeah, that's really really good. And and this guy was Hindu. You know, yeah. Wow. And he was telling me, Chaplain, you, you're a chaplain, you're a Christian Chaplain, right? It's a Christmas tree lighting ceremony. You know, you got the other stuff there too. And so I go back, and my 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 boss, I said, uh, How'd, he said, how the briefing go? And I said, well, sir, um, uh, weird. Uh, we need to uh, change some of our advertising for it because it is a it's going to be a Christmas tree lighting ceremony now. And he goes, what did you say to the commander? You know, and he was thinking I did something horrible. And I said, no, it was from him. He's like, okay, uh, whatever. So anyway, but that just goes to show that sometimes we really need to stand up you know, for who we are and what we believe and, uh, you know, smartly, but but doing that. So I think that's really, really important. There's
1: a time to stand and there's a way to stand.
0: There is, there is. Along, you along, know, um, as a, pardon me? Said, What's that? Alongside something you said, though, you said you a
3: Hindu, had the same situation with another religion. But as, though, at First Liberty, you also represent people from Yeah, on, other faiths, Christian yep. Mm-hmm. because Liberty too, it's, it's yep. Threat. So yep. have you had Hindu, Buddhist?
1: Muslim? Yes. Oh yeah, we've represented. Uh, I mean, m- many different faiths.
3: Because that's what the First Amendment
1: is. Yes. Yeah. Religious freedom for one is religious freedom for all. If I, if I, if I defend the First Amendment rights of a Buddhist, that op- that keeps the doors open for the Christian yeah. and, and vice versa. Yeah. I think
3: that's a great witness too. You know, for Christians to take the lead on defending. The religious freedom of, of other people and rights of you others. Know, and yeah. I think that opens them up to uh help, help alliance but also conversation with us as chaplains. Hey, what do you what do you believe again? And, um, and remember, we
1: have objective truth, so I, I, I don't fear yeah. their yeah. beliefs. That's I don't true. fear their beliefs at all.
0: Yeah. 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 We need we need to do I mean that's what we're called to do as chaplains, whether you're military or civilian. You know, we are we work in a pluralistic environment. Right. And and we need to be supporting those of other faiths, um, you know, without compromising our own. But we need to be supporting those of other faiths. When you're on a ship, you know, you've got people from, from all sorts of faiths and no faith at all. Right. You know, so I represented
1: a Navy chaplain a number of years ago, and he said back in the day when he first became—he's retired now—when he was first coming through the chaplain pipeline, he said they used to. They, one of the things they used to teach them at at Navy chaplain school was. This little phrase, this little jingle that they had to remember: uh, uh, cooperation without compromise. And he goes, and then the Senior Chaplain always said, just don't get it backwards. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 That so
1: yeah. That is so true. Cooperation without compromise.
0: That's even in our that's even in our our documents for the EPC as, as chaplains. So that's really important. Um, you know, there is no question, and I'm I am so thankful. For Mike and his organization, and others that are there as well, because we, as you said, religious liberty, religion overall is under attack um, in in our country. I mean, my my friends in Russia are horrified at what's going on in our country right now, because you know they were they were excited about the changes that occurred years ago. Before things have kind of changed backwards a bit there, about what, what our country stood for and who we are, and now they're just seeing so much of what their country was and what Pravda means and things like that and um, happening here in the, in the United States. So, so I'm so thankful for not only religious support, um, uh, you know, and, and and religious freedom support and all that. Um, you know, most recently, uh, just to let you know. Um, Josh Hawley, uh, Mike Pompeo, they're both EPC guys. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that.
3: Yes.
0: And uh, and they are they are kind of under attack right now because of their views toward the origination of the virus and all that and what's happening. So and because they're connected to the EPC, what do you think will be connected to that? Yep. You know, I didn't know they were EPC. So, it okay yeah. to say. I didn't
1: know that.
3: Yeah. As chairman of this committee, I got a threatening letter. That if I didn't denounce
0: those two, I would be sued. And you probably got, you probably got. It yeah, and I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to talk to get into that. But yeah, but so there's. That's, that's, I, the kind of that's what. That's the arena we're kind of dealing with right now. Michael Jordan. Michael. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I've
0: already done that. Uh, except I just showed him. So I because I got another one from somebody else
3: anyway but you um get
0: my, my email address
4: and
3: my text code? Oh yeah yeah.
0: so anyway um but with uh i am uber without driving thrilled um that uh you have been with us uh today and um there will be some more question answer time at the at the ending part of our time together so you'll be able to ask more questions uh, I'd rather you ask more questions of him than me. Because you can get me all the time.
1: Uh, although you
0: can get him now because you have text liberty to four seven four seven.
1: Well, that doesn't go to me. But yeah. if they if you need to reach me, please, you know, Mark Mark has my has my. I have his yes
0: yes I have uh, yeah, his Um anyway. Um, But, uh, Mike, it has been.
1: Well, I'm just impressed I was actually able to talk as long as I. Yeah, you
0: did really well. uh, But let's just express our uh, sincere appreciation to you.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Please.